Hereditary and non-hereditary polyposis syndromes are a realm where specialties like gastroenterology and surgery collide. And management algorithms, genetic associations, and indications for surgery can be hard to keep straight. And that's why today we are going to review polyposis syndromes with an expert. Yeah, um, there's always been a, a bit of an informal collaboration between GI and uh, uh, the surgeons um, on this polyposis uh, patient population. That's Dr. Joseph Palermo. He's a pediatric gastroenterologist and a member of the multidisciplinary polyposis team at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. So the reason that we set up uh, the center was to really look for uh, a way to improve care for, for these patients and a need for a comprehensive integrated care um, in patients with significant risk for colon cancer. And, uh, you know, if these patients aren't picked up, um, often will have colon cancer in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Today, he's going to walk us through everything that the surgical trainee needs to know about the workup and management of polyposis syndromes in children. So stick around. This is the Stay Current Podcast. Whether the patient comes in for a routine screening due to a known family history or they present with bloody stools, the differential diagnosis is really broad, including polyposis syndromes, juvenile polyps, anal fissures, rectal ulcers, vascular anomalies, and a Meckel's diverticulum. And that could necessitate an urgent operation. Yeah, but a good point to remember is that, and, and the surgeons here know that we push back quite a bit because if you have a kid who comes in, dropping their hemoglobin to five on multiple occasions, even with a negative Meckel scan, they need a laparotomy. In kids less than two, blood in the stool can sometimes be chalked up to an allergy, but commonly it's due to lymphonodular hyperplasia. Lymphonodular hyperplasia in little babies, you know, up to two years of age, um, we often see some uh, streaky blood in the stool. And the vast majority of the patients, especially when they're in their first year of life, is really just from uh, LNH in the colon, which some people think is associated with cow's milk protein allergy, but probably is not always associated with an allergy, and it's just a normal developmental um, finding in their GI tract. Um, and most of these patients, even if they have, or given the diagnosis of cow's milk protein allergy, will um, outgrow it, meaning that when they actually challenge them at a year of age, they're fine. So it's not clear that they actually ever have an allergy. Keep this in mind, but understand that most of the workup is done by the pediatric gastroenterologist. Now, let's jump to the most common polyposis syndrome, familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome. So FAP, uh, these are autosomal dominant mutations in the tumor suppressor gene APC. It's present in about one to five to one to 25,000 live births. And 100% will have adenomatous polyps in their colon uh, at some point in time in their life. Nearly 100% will have malignant transformation in their colon by the age of 40. The mutation in APC can be germline or somatic, but either way, they lead to alterations in the signaling pathway and overgrowth. Before we get too deep in the weeds with each diagnosis, make sure you scroll down below the media player. We post a table to keep all the syndromes and the genetics and histology straight. So what do we see? So on a scope with somebody with FAP, you'll see these lawns of polyps thousands of polyps throughout the colon. These polyps are removed endoscopically and sent to pathology where they look for a few key findings. Luckily for us, most kids do not have any evidence of high-grade dysplasia, um, but uh, it is one of the reasons that we are watching them closely because it can happen. Those polyps aren't only found in the colon, they can also grow in the fundus of the stomach. And while they're usually benign, it's still important to sample and confirm the diagnosis. Plus, we need to keep an eye out and make sure that they don't cause any problems. 
More commonly uh, to cause problems in the stomach is if they develop adenomas, because the adenomas will actually uh, form usually closer down to the antrum, and so they can get large enough to actually be obstructive or get sucked in and out of the pylorus. Um, and then, uh, I don't have pictures of it, but uh, also in the uh, um, duodenum, they can develop polyps uh, and adenomatous change, both in the duodenum as well as in the pylorus, uh, excuse me, in the um, ampulla. They can even get polyps in the duodenum or the ampulla. Now, outside the GI tract, FAP has typical and testable associations. Patients may have bilateral hypertrophy of the retinal pigment called chirpy. They can have bone osteomas, desmoids, adrenal adenomas, or thyroid nodules. All percentage will get thyroid carcinomas. Um, and so we do regular thyroid screenings on all of our patients after teenage years. And then for the um, other uh, interesting association is uh, with hepatoblastoma. Um, about 1%, uh, or less than 1% of patients with FAP will have hepatoblastoma, but hepatoblastoma patients, um, there's a high rate of patients who have um, APC mutations. So we are very careful to screen our patients under five years of age. When deciding which patients need screening, be on the lookout for families with a known APC mutation or a first degree relative with FAP, but this is medicine, so there are always cases that don't quite follow the rule. The 20 to 30% of spontaneous mutations um, and patients with FAP, so there is no family history. And again, 10% of patients who truly have FAP with lots of adenomas um, do not have an identifiable mutation. So you don't have to have a mutation to have FAP, and we still screen those patients without a known mutation um, in the same way. Let's break down the screening recommendations. At 10 years old, the screening starts with the colonoscopy every one to two years. For kids under five years old, the screening is pretty rigorous. Check out the table with screening guidelines below. At Cincinnati Children's Hospital, we also use a screening upper endoscopy while patients are under general anesthesia. We generally here will also do an upper endoscopy, again, because there can be findings on the upper endoscopy of uh, things besides polyposis. And so if a kid has belly pain, it'd be good to know if they have bad gastritis or um, H. pylori or, or something else. And so we, we like to have some base have that as a baseline. If there's going to be an anesthesia, um, we would rather just get that scope done at the same time. Again, we started around 10 to 12 years of age, but it can certainly be sooner if they have any symptoms, pain, diarrhea, bleeding. Um, if there was a family history of colon cancer at a young age, we, um, you know, there are reports of colon cancers in these patients as early as their late teens. And so if a family member at 18 had uh, colon cancer, we might start their screening at eight or seven. If you identify a polyp on screening, then yearly endoscopy is needed. If you don't see a polyp with their first scope, you could probably space that out safely to two or three years. Surgical resection is needed once a cancerous lesion is noted or if the patient's having significant symptoms. But there are some relative indications for a colectomy as well. Relative indications are when they start to have multiple large polyps, um, greater than six millimeters, again, because of the risk for um, uh, complications like obstruction. Um, if there's a significant increase in adenomas, you know, the literature says less than 50, but we will often still monitor them if they stay small and don't start looking uh, abnormal um, and wait till they get to, to larger numbers, um, only because of, uh, as I said before, trying to personalize or individualize the timing of when they would have their colectomy. Obviously, if there's high-grade dysplasia, then we go pretty quickly to colectomy. Um, and then, as you saw, when they have those lawns of polyps um, and it's really impossible to do adequate surveillance, um, uh, that certainly is a time to do it. And we generally try and do it, um, uh, I'd say on here, I'd say greater than 20 years, but we actually try and do it less than 20 years. We try and do it before they um, head off to college, before they uh, leave our um, uh, 
purview because once they head out into the real world, we often lose contact. And obviously, if they have cancer or high-grade dysplasia, large polyps, or too many polyps to reasonably surveil, then either a total colectomy or a total proctocolectomy is the operation of choice based on the rectal polyp burden. But following surgery, surveillance isn't over. Both with total colectomy and uh, ileorectal anastomosis, um, as well as with total uh, proctocolectomy and anal anastomosis, um, they still require um, annual surveillance of the cuff or the pouch. And uh, the cuff, obviously, certainly because it's still colonic mucosa, but even in the pouch, um, which is uh, ileal, they, they still can develop adenomas and, um, uh, and cancer. So uh, they continue with their yearly surveillance indefinitely. The literature is still unable to identify effective non-surgical therapies, but options such as chemo prevention, aspirin, and NSAIDs, well, they've all been investigated, but so far, nothing's decreased the progression of disease or improved long-term outcomes. But the good news is aspirin and NSAIDs, they can reduce the polyp burden. There has been one good uh, prospective uh, randomized control study in kids. This was a CHIP study, which looked at Celebrex. Uh, in patients 12 to 17 year old, it was 12, a double blind randomized placebo controlled study with 100 patients in both arms over five years. So pretty decent uh, follow up time. And what you can see here is uh, the placebo in circles and the Celebrex in squares is that really at the time of five years, there's really not a significant difference between the two um, in what they're looking at, which is uh, the, uh, the event, which is for them, uh, uh, appearance of greater than 20 polyps that are at least two millimeters in size. What they found in that short term is that Celebrex seems to decrease the total number of polyps, but after about five years of therapy, there's really no significant difference between Celebrex and placebo. If you want to read more, we have this study and the images linked below. Smaller uh, studies looking at uh, both other NSAIDs um, as well as uh, mTOR inhibitors, um, uh, EGFR inhibitors, uh, immune modulation, some of them alone, some of them in combination, but unfortunately they all have uh, uh, similar outcomes, meaning that they, they may slow or decrease the number of uh, polyps, but do not uh, actually prevent regression. FAP with an APC mutation is the most common hereditary polyposis syndrome, and there are special subtypes to be aware of. There are a couple other subtypes of uh, FAP. So Gardner syndrome, named after Dr. Gardner, Back in, who identified this back in 1950s, is a variant of FAP. And it um, basically, you have the same uh, adenomatous polyps in the colon, but they are more prone to develop desmoid tumors, um, as well as osteomas, uh, epidermoid cysts, and uh, uh, the periampulary tumors in the duodenum. Turcotte syndrome has the commonly tested CNS tumors and gangliomas, while attenuated FAP has a slightly different disease trajectory. They have fewer polyps at a later onset, so screening starts around 30 years old. The lifetime risk of cancer is lower than in, in classic FAP, but it's still, as you can see, very high. Okay, pour yourself another bowl of alphabet soup. We have another syndrome incoming. The final one I want to talk about for adenomatous polyposis syndrome is uh, the muti-associated uh, polyposis. And this is actually an autosomal recessive um, uh, syndrome, um, and this is uh, MUTI is actually a, um, another DNA uh, repair gene. Patients with MUTI-associated polyposis, or MAP, have a higher risk of colon cancer than the general population, so screening it starts early, around 30 to 40 years old. As genetic screening becomes more common, more mutations are always being identified. And as we've done a lot more genetic screening of patients and families, 
Um, there have been a lot of other um, very uh, interesting, but very interesting, but rare um, genetic mutations. Again, often mainly in uh, DNA repair genes. Now switching gears to the hamartomatous polyposis syndromes. The most common is juvenile polyposis syndrome, which affects one in 100,000 live births and it's related to yet another genetic mutation, this time in SMAD4. There are about 20% of patients who have a SMAD4 mutation. Um, also 20% have BRMP1A. But the SMAD4 mutation I'll talk about a little bit later because that's also associated with um, hereditary uh, hemorrhagic telangiectasia. We've been seeing this in a lot of our patients with SMAD4 mutations is that they have a lot more increased in, um, mucosal inflammation. Um, oftentimes when we scope these kids that have JPS and HHT, it'll actually it'll look actually like look IBD. Like um, and so, uh, and it's thought that this is uh, happening because there's change in the regulation of TGF-beta based on the SMAD4 mutation. Once we send a biopsy of suspected juvenile polyposis, what is the pathologist looking for? If you look at it under a microscope, again, what you see is that you see these large uh, dilated cystic dilation of their glands, lined by cuboidal epithelium. There's lots of uh, uh, irritation, inflammation, um, hemorrhage uh, in these polyps but there's no large blood vessels running here through the through the stalk. About 95% of single polyps in children are juvenile polyps, and usually they're on the left side. Screening is indicated when there's more than three to five polyps or multiple polyps over multiple scopes. It's also known that if you, with JPS, if you have an earlier presentation in infancy or childhood, it's more severe, meaning your polyp burden is higher, um, you're more likely to have problems with uh, anemia, uh, just because of the number and size of the polyps that develop. Officially, screening starts at 15 years old, but the first colonoscopy is recommended at the first presentation of symptoms. And so again, we do upper endoscopy, colonoscopy, and in this case, we also do a capsule endoscopy at least once um, as a baseline um, early on to see if there are any um, uh, polyps in the small intestine, mainly because, you know, most kids are going to have at some point in time in their life belly pain, and knowing what they already have in there is going to be helpful because if they have polyps in there that are um, even if they're small, if we know they're already in there and growing and they start having belly pain, um, we, you know, those are the kids that we would probably um, be more um, aggressive with, with imaging, as well as um, doing other things like uh, push enteroscopy to try and get to the polyps. Cancer isn't usually detected until adulthood and therefore surgical resection is only indicated if symptomatic, not for prophylaxis. Otherwise, endoscopy is the mainstay of management, both for screening and polypectomy. Our follow-up uh, for GI polyps, uh, again, is annual screenings. Um, if you identify a polyp, and then if you, there's no polyps on the initial screening, you can space about every two to three years. Putz-Jaeger syndrome is a slightly less common pathology, affecting one in 200,000 live births annually, with a mutation in STK11. This syndrome has a characteristic buzzword and phenotype. It's mucocutaneous lesions. Predominant lesions that you'll notice on their exam are their mucocutaneous lesions, and I'll show you some pictures. Um, but they have uh, developed GI hamartomatous polyps um, in the small bowel often, more, more so than in the colon. And a third of the patients will have symptoms from the polyps before 10 years of age. And 50% will have symptoms by before 20 years of age. And again, those symptoms, as you'd expect, are pain, bleeding, obstruction, anemia, um, intussusception, while the symptoms are from a GI source, the cancer risk can be outside the GI tract and the lifetime risk is up to 90%. So screening for GI and extraintestinal cancers starts around three to five years old. And as I said, they get lots of tumors outside uh, the GI tract. Um, I think the one I've seen most often in pediatrics are their Sertoli cell tumors. Um, and I've had a couple kids who've had those, um, but uh, 
Um, as uh, patients get older, obviously they have to have screening for breast, uh, ovarian, pancreatic uh, tumors as well. Um, lung, there's no specific screening, but we knew that they're at increased risk for lung cancer, so they're um, uh, counseled not to smoke. P10 mutations are autosomal dominant and found in 1 in 200,000 patients. These syndromes also produce hamartomatous polyps. The two primary groups are those with Cowden syndromes and those with Banyan-Riley-Rubicaldo uh, syndrome. While these syndromes confer a low colon cancer risk, it's still higher than the general population, so screening is still a mainstay of treatment. Plus, the extra intestinal manifestations can be malignant, including a rare childhood presentation of thyroid cancer. These are some of the hamartomatous polyps that you can see in Cowden syndrome um, along the gums and the lip and the tongue. Hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer syndromes are related to defects in the mismatch repair genes and either lead to Lynch syndrome, which is autosomal dominant, or constitutional mismatch repair defect, CMMD, an autosomal recessive disease. Um, so Lynch syndrome, um, because you guys, uh, you know, from the adult side certainly have heard about this, but it's hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer from dominant mutations in the mismatch repair genes and it's present in 3-5% to 5 of all colon cancers and 3% of all uterine cancers. Patients with Lynch syndrome start screening between 20 to 30 years old. The exact guidelines vary based on which gene mutation is present, but screening is important. So for Lynch syndrome, we do our initial screening and colonoscopy um, every one to two years. Um, again, this is predominantly more in adults, um, and so if they have mutations um, in MLH1 or 2 or MSH2, they start at 20 to 25 years of age. Um, mutations in MSH6 or PMS2, they start at 25 to 30 years of age. Um, it can be earlier if they have a first degree relative with cancer. CMMRD, however, is very aggressive and leads to both GI and non-GI cancers in patients less than 25 years old. So screening happens at a much younger age and it's on a pretty intense schedule with regular follow-up every six months. And then the constitutional mismatch repair defects, um, uh, if they have a known mutation um, uh, in family history, they, we start very early at uh, every eight years with their colonoscopy. Um, but other tumors start even earlier. So if they have brain tumors um, and they have a known mutation, uh, to screen for brain tumors and somebody with a known mutation, they start. we start as early as age two. Um, and for other mutations, uh, for the um, leukemias and lymphomas, we start at age one with uh, CVCs and, and exams. For pediatric patients with polyposis syndromes, the transition to adulthood can be tough, and so assuring that appropriate transfer of care to an adult GI team or colorectal surgeon is an important part of their overall care plan. And again, they need extra intestinal um, screening as well, um, and uh, this is where coordination, multidisciplinary coordination is important, especially when these patients transition to the, transition to the adult side to make sure that not just their colon screening, but all the other screenings continue. Thanks for joining us for a discussion of pediatric polyposis disease and all the genetics that go with it. Remember to check the links below for a helpful table relating the syndromes, the genetic mutations, and the relevant histology. Follow us on social media, like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, and if you're listening, let us know what you think, what you like, what you don't like. We really want to know your ideas and what you want to hear about in the future. Until then, this is Brittany, and remember, knowledge should be free.